Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Chinese food, especially Chinese takeout food, has this reputation for being cheap and easy and not delicious and not great. Um, those things aren't true. Actually, it is so spectacularly untrue that I think Chinese American food is so wonderful to think about and, and learn from. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hazel. Today on the show, I'm catching up with chef, activist, pop-up king, Michigan pizza fan, and entrepreneur, Lucas Sin. Lucas is behind the award-winning Chinese-American restaurants, Junza Kitchen and Nice Day, and over the past year has earned a wide following on Instagram for seriously ingenious cooking videos. I, for one, have made his famous tomato and egg drop soup, and um, I've also made his... I take on his chicken wing fried rice, which is really ingenious. But the tomato and egg drop soup we recently wrote about on Taste, actually. I have to say, when I posted a photo of him in the studio, I had like three different people from three different worlds hit me up and say, wow, I love Lucas. And it's true, his his Instagram following has become huge. He has lots of followers, I'm sure, like maybe like 80,000 or something like that. And, you know, he told me after the interview, he said people sometimes refer to him as the Chinese guy on Instagram. He was, of course, joking, but this made me feel a little sad because as I wrote in my profile of Lucas earlier on Taste, he's got so much more going for him than these crafty cooking videos. His view of food is shaped by a Hong Kong upbringing, U.S. education, and a deep love for culinary history, which we talk about in this interview we also discuss his love of the Midwest, Michigan in particular, and how his work at Junza and Nice Day is his attempt to re-educate Americans about Chinese-American food, which represents over 45,000 independent mom-and-pop shops in the country. That's a massive amount of these restaurants. The future is really bright for Lucas Sin, and I had just the most amazing time catching up with him. Here's Matt with Lucas. And make sure to visit tastecooking.com for our latest stories and recipes and to sign up for our newsletters, which drop on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Lucas Sin, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Oh, man, this is a long time coming. I feel I like we've been uh, Instagram buds for a year and a half, two years. I interviewed you for sure. the Taste Monday interview like a year ago. Uh-huh. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing well. Yeah. I don't know if I'm doing good yet. I would like to do good, but I'm doing well. <laughs> well, I've written many words about you and you. I've tried to and said you're doing pretty good. <laughs> I, we'll, we will see. Um, there's a lot on the horizon. There's a lot of things I want to do, but we just got started. So I agree. And I, I wanted just to, to catch uh, our listeners up. By my accounts, and this is just like me, like kind of like scratching some notes. You've uh, you won the you're a best new chef from Food and Wine, which is a huge honor. Uh, you have recorded and aired a Vice Munchies Night Out video. Not aired quite yet, but we filmed it. Oh, you filmed. Okay, good. I was like, I didn't see it, but you filmed it. That's like, 
I want to hear about that. And yeah. then you've got this endless stream of Instagram content that um, I was first drawn to. And I just love the way that you actually cook at home and you cook in your your cool tabletop, your your your, your countertop, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of set up your your stove. And I, I think it's pans and hands in a way that makes me super excited about food. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's very kind of you. It's it's the truth. <laughs> so let's talk about Vice. So you 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 as a kid watched a lot of those Vice Munchies Nights Out shows. Absolutely. Right? I mean, uh, I feel like all of my friends uh, and myself, of course, uh, became chefs because of the Chefs Night Out videos. Those guys look like rock stars. Mm-hmm. They look like they're having so much fun. I can't believe Vice pays for people to just have fun <laughs> on camera all night out. And it was, I mean, more than anything, uh, I think. What I love about cooking and what I love about being in the industry is you get to eat food that your friends cook and you get to cook for your friends and you get to talk about food. Um, you get to uh, shit on each other and make fun of each other. <laughs> and, and, you know, like, yeah. um, and that's what we did. You know, um, uh, Chef's Night Out obviously wasn't being filmed for about a year yeah. because of the pandemic. And the Munchings team hit me and my buddy Eric Z and I up. The two of us do this thing called Shy Boys Club where we do monthly pop-ups um, we make introverted Asian cuisine. Uh, we take ourselves too seriously. It, it's a <laughs> stupid you thing. Introverted Asian cuisine, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too <laughs> stupid to begin with. But, yeah. you know, like, uh, it's very fun to be, be to get to be silly in front of a camera for, you know, for, for all night out. And we took we took the team to all sorts of Chinatowns. Yeah. Um, we ate all sorts of food. Um, our only rule was that we only drink Long Island iced teas. And we only L-I-T, eat. Crawl, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, it's one of those things. Long Island iced teas. Well, here's a hypothesis, right? Yeah. So we got a bit of a reputation for liking to drink Long Island iced teas. So we started ordering them everywhere we went, right? Obviously, ordering them at a dive bar, no big deal. We'll we'll give it to you. But for whatever reason, Eric and I started ordering Long Island iced teas at very fancy, very, very, very fancy restaurants. (laughs) Um, Our first big one was at Blue Hillstone Barns. Nice. (laughs) A buddy of ours, Jonathan Tan, was doing a Chinese pop-up up there. And we asked for the Long Island iced teas. And they said, oh, you know, we don't really have it on the menu. And we said, but you know how to make one, right? <laughs> they made Were it. Were they like Long Island is too far for our locally sourced <laughs> yeah, uh, menu? Exactly. <laughs> and it's we're in this beautiful restaurant. Like the tables are padded so that when you put your cutlery down, it doesn't make a sound, you know? Um, and they sent us these uh, Long Island iced teas that has a little bit of Blue Hill twist with them. And unfortunately, the long story short is that we have a bit of a tradition of drinking them quite quickly. They go down too quickly. In college, I used to drink them quite a bit. So And and yeah. with two idiot chefs who have a little bit of a competitive nature, you end up drinking them very, very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where it's interesting because everyone in the industry, um, most people in the industry like to drink. And so when you're in a very, very nice place and you ask for something crass and disgusting, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like a long line iced tea, I think it equalizes things a little bit. Yeah, like, it's a nice democratizes the space, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, 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 it's, and it's fun, you know. Um, uh, most of the time, we uh, we get the Long Islands. Uh, we've been turned down once or twice, um, but we don't we don't go back to those places. <laughs> so let's talk about pop ups because you're talking about the one you do here in New York quite often. Um, but you also started your career doing pop ups in Hong Kong as a 16 year old. I want to hear about was that when the the, the bug was uh, you know bit you the sh- the I chef so. bug? Yeah, less chef bug, more take yourself too seriously. Just go for it. Bug. Cool, cool, cool. Um, the first spot was I was in secondary school, high school here um, in mm-hmm. Hong Kong, and it 
I was 16 years old or so. And then we figured that, me and my friends figured that we could just start serving people food. Um, we could just play restaurant <laughs> and pretend like we were chefs and learn how to hold three plates at once and talk about wine and, and, and put together composed dishes. And it was in this um, newspaper factory that um, mm-hmm. wasn't a newspaper factory anymore. And so there was a, this kitchen next to this wine cellar and we like, served this food in this wine cellar. And 13 courses, 16-year-olds. At first, we were serving our parents, and then our parents brought other people. And then we started serving our uh, teachers and our principals, and they brought people. And it just became this thing where uh, we realized that through these 13 courses, we could tell people what we were trying to do. We're kids. We're pretending like we run a restaurant. And we're also trying to tell you why we're cooking this food as we're cooking it. Were you doing Cantonese food or were you doing like Western food? Like what was and and, and second question is like was it objectively uh, pretty good, pretty dope, or was it <laughs> I, um, not good? Like, as a sixteen-year-old, I thought it was quite good. <laughs> um, we called it Hong Kong food, um, cool. and what I love about Hong Kong, obviously, is that it's this um, uh, blending pot of cultures. Right? There's the East, there's the West, um, there's different regions of China. Cool, there is cool. Japanese influence, Korean influence. You know, um, like the, the 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 entree. You know, the, the big signature dish was this clay pot rice. That was the first dish that I ever learned how to make. It had steamed taro over the top, different types of cured meats, um, a bunch of herbs and spices and things, and a little bit, uh, and was finished with this soy sauce that we had infused with lard. So, you know, like these things, they are mm-hmm. ideas that we like take from restaurants. You know, we're copying yeah. from restaurants that we liked eating at, but they had a little bit of a uh, twist because it was served after this Japanese sort of like wagyu course. And okay. after that, you had this like sort of like Thanksgiving style um, sweet potato uh, mm-hmm. casserole type of dessert thingy. The good news is I don't have any pictures of the <laughs> food. I scrapped. bet it was. It, uh, I don't know, 16-year-olds putting out food. But it was a lot of fun. It really taught me how important it was to try to string together stories. You know, when you put food on the table, you want to tell people why you cooked it a certain yeah. way. And that's that's the bug, right? That's what's been so That's infectious. a great answer. And, and so uh, the bug was there, but it wasn't necessarily for um, chefing because you go to Yale, you study cognitive science. Not sure what that is. We can talk about what mm-hmm. that means. But you weren't – you kind of left the path of food, right? You you went to college, right? Yeah. But right. you ended up doing the pop-up again at Yale. So talk about your time there. Were you always considering a, a career in food or did you really want to be a scientist or a therapist? I'm not sure what that means. I didn't uh, really consider myself a chef at any of this time. It just was sort of exciting to make food with a bunch of your friends who didn't really know how to cook in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, at Yale, it's, I think, uh, a lot of, because uh, academics are so important, everyone's thinking about these big ideas all the time. There's so much stuff going on in their heads. Yeah. But nobody really knows how to hold a broom or wash dishes or bus tables. And so when you start asking people to do these things, suddenly it's like everyone's rolling up their sleeves and just like, working on this one thing. Um, of course, it was exciting because you had these uh, uh, computer science nerds coding uh, reservation systems and you had these like business people, like business nerds kind of like mm-hmm. uh, figuring out how to like uh, uh, price a menu properly and so on and so forth. And it's a good exercise in entrepreneurship for sure. But our idea was that every month we, or sorry, every semester we had a different concept. And that concept had to be built from scratch from a different team. So one concept was, our first one was instant noodles. All we did was you bring your own instant noodle. We'll make this like 24-hour, 36-hour broth. And we'll sous vide a bunch of like pork belly and all these toppings. And for five bucks, we would cook your instant noodles and serve it with this like crazy Were you seeing like shin? Were you seeing like Japanese yeah, noodles? Mostly shin. Like yeah. uh, you know, we were very reluctant to cook uh, marichan. But, mm-hmm. And we had like a nice one, like um, this Japanese brand, uh, Chuka, that yeah. um, uh, we would you know, swap out for the yeah. marichan that people brought in marichan. But uh, that was the first concept. And it's like, again, 
not taking yourself too seriously and just putting out food and like ha- hopefully building some type of atmosphere and a lot of bootstrapping, you know. Yeah. So I was doing that um, on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays all throughout my college years. And I think at the height of it, we were serving something like 250 people out of a dorm, like dorm kitchen, like in the basement of our dorms. And it was so much fun. Yeah. It felt like that was the hobby. Um, the cognitive science is like the Monday to Thursday thing. Yeah. And nowadays it feels flipped. You know, uh, I'm a professional chef now. That's actually what I do on a day-to-day basis, seven days a week. So um, you dabble in some cognitive science on the weekends? You, this is the thing, right? Most people who know about this degree, and so cognitive science in its core is trying to answer big questions about the mind with experimental uh, science, right? So if you want to know whether, for example, if you want to know whether free will exists, you can try to uh, access it by strapping little wooden sticks onto ants to see if they move in a certain way. Or you can ask uh, Spinoza, a philosopher, you know, what he thought about free will. Um, Or you could try to code a computer program that Mm -hmm. codes free will, right? For example, like Mm -hmm. theoretically. And so it just, at the core of it, it was trying to answer difficult questions in an interdisciplinary manner. Mm-hmm. And restaurants in particular and cooking in particular is, ex- is exactly that, right? So much of it is science. There's a little bit of you know, marketing entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. There is uh, history, especially for me, I'm particularly interested in immigration history, right? There's an artistic element to it, like an aesthetic element to it. And so you're trying to bring in all these different disciplines into a couple plates of food and an institution and a box, and you're trying to get people in and that sort of thing. So I think there is something analogous there. Mm. What's not analogous isn't that. It's not like I read enough uh, uh, um, uh, I read enough Freud to make my pork chops taste better. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't throw a book at it like a sous vide machine and make <laughs> yeah, it work. Exactly. Right? Right. Absolutely. But this is very curious. So you were putting together some of your interdisciplinary education into these pop-ups on the weekends and you were thinking about um, you're bringing in folks who are in your dorm and bringing in all these different um, specialties and creating a restaurant that was using data, that was mm-hmm. using philosophy, mm-hmm. that was using all these elements. That That's like very refreshing. I feel like that's definitely <laughs> something that isn't done necessarily um, from the start for most restaurants. So I think you, you know, for us, like me and my team uh, at Junza and, and at Nice Day, we wanted to try to be smart about the things we were doing. Um, and a lot of our backgrounds were primarily in academics. So I think that was sort of the natural inclination um, for mm. better and for, for better, for worse, because it's important to say and it's important to note the, the mistakes along the way. You know, um, mm. there's something to be said for a group of people who didn't really have a lot of restaurant experience opening restaurants and, and trying to you know, uh, figure it out step by step. But it was good because I think um, we picked our genre well. Yeah. Um, we decided that it was important to, in order to achieve our goal, which is broadly speaking to help revitalize Chinese food in America, right? To, to, to change how Chinese food was being perceived. We had decided that fast casual and now takeout um, are important genres to tackle. And there are particular types of restaurants like fast casual and takeout that are conducive to, you know, f- for example, data and mm-hmm. philosophy forward um, um, thinking and business building. Well, one example, I when I when I was introduced to Junza, it, I believe it was an Eater article, maybe like four or five years ago, maybe less. And it was uh, documenting how you and your team at Junza were kind of blending history and data and, and commerce. And, and the philosophy was to approach to go Chinese American restaurants and and discuss with with ownership ways that you could take over their business and they could then exit 
the business um, equitably and fairly, and Genzo would take it over. I know the pandemic, of course, changed a lot of everything. And so maybe that was sidetracked a bit because of the pandemic. But that, to me, was the reason I reached out to you right away. I was like, this, to me, is extremely interesting and really cool that you're thinking about elders. You're thinking about um, the way that commerce can work for first gen, second gen, and then new, newer, younger creative folks. So what is the status of that model with Junza? And then we can also talk about the way that you're rethinking Chinese American cuisine. But first, I want to hear about that. Yeah. So we built, um, and I'll try to be concise about this because mm-hmm. I can talk about this forever and ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, nice Day was is a concept that we built um, this year. And the hope for Nice Day is to, uh, to to address that problem. So we you know, had to build a different restaurant brand and, and uh, a type of restaurant, right? So the fact of the matter is, here's the context, right? Before the pandemic, and somebody needs to fact check me on this, but I believe it was like between, I want to say 2016, 2018, 2016, 2019 or so, it's like 16% of all restaurants were, of Chinese restaurants closed in New York City. Yeah. And this is before the pandemic. This is before anti-Asian, all of this stuff. It's before COVID. And um, that is striking. It's also a good thing, right? What's good about it is that these uh, Chinese immigrants who came here to run these restaurants, and restaurants are ridiculously difficult because they're mom and pop shops because they're working there six, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Their kids no longer have to go back to the restaurants, right? They're now lawyers and doctors. That's a great thing. Um, on the other hand, the demand for Chinese takeout is going up and up and up and up. Um, and these leases um, in particular are still being passed from restaurant Chinese restaurant owner to Chinese restaurant owner. Um, on top of this, the supply chain that backs... Chinese takeout restaurants is, is usually a little bit insular. So uh, specific restaurants in, and, and we're not talking just New York City, we're talking all over the U.S. These restaurants are tied to specific uh, distributors. And if these restaurants close, the distributors, those local distributors that pull mm-hmm. produce from local Asian farmers, right, for example, are going to start to close as well. So, and the, these distributors don't really distribute to non-Chinese restaurants. It's a house right? of cards. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's the, the fact of the matter is that between that and also, you know, massive labor issues and, and the way the labor economy is structured for Chinese takeout restaurants, Chinese restaurants are facing a unique sort of set of obstacles that many other restaurants aren't facing. Um, and I would like to see how we can alleviate that by taking advantage of the fact that Chinese food is getting more and more popular and Chinese takeout in its in all of its legacy is also getting more and more mm-hmm. popular, right? The demand is still going up. So we're talking general sauce chicken and lo mein, right? This is set, a set, almost a separate conversation mm-hmm. to um, uh, Sichuan food and Hunanese food and all these mm-hmm. regional specialties, right? Um, so these mom and pop shops, I think um, uh, the crisis that they're facing is worth addressing. And the good news is, um, well, the bad news is we haven't opened a single proper nice day Chinese restaurant yeah, yet. Yeah, I know. Um, it, it really had, you have big plans for nice day and yeah. it, it was stalled out by the pandemic. And we, you know, we moved, uh, we moved into our, uh, one of our old Junza spaces to try to test out some of our food and test mm-hmm. out some of the systems. Um, but we're about to open our first real restaurant in Long Island, um, in the suburbs, not in New York City, not in mm-hmm. Manhattan, um, in a little strip mall uh, in Huntington. Mm-hmm. Um, it's next to a bagel shop and an adult toy store mm-hmm. and a foot massage place. And it's just like off a highway. And this is where Chinese takeout Sounds restaurants perfect, are. Sounds perfect, to right. be honest. Exactly. Sounds Ten perfect. seats. Nobody really eats there. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch of uh, people that come in for lunch, uh, you know, combo boxes. And then at night, it's mostly families ordering big, big orders of, of, of uh, general. And they're ordering food for the kids and stir-fried vegetables and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So the great news is that um, we've been wor- we, we spent a long time finding this location because we're working very closely with the previous owner, Mr. Zhang. We need to figure out how to uh, leverage um, 
things that he knows about the neighborhood, like what dishes sell well, um, what relationships do you have with your customers, um, what days do you open, what are your hours, and th- that sort of thing, as well as obviously the space that he has his hands on um, with our sort of hopefully building, budding uh, expertise in scalability and yeah. operationalization products, and so sourcing. sourcing right? yeah. And those and are sort of things, yeah. So how many of these nice days can you do in a year if you're really, I mean, this is a scalable business and yeah. it's so altruistic in, in sense of, of helping the previous owners exit gracefully mm-hmm. and financially mm-hmm. secured. How many of these can you do? If there are... Uh, and again, I haven't updated my numbers, but pre-pandemic, we're talking about like 46,000 Chinese restaurants in the U.S., right? Exactly. So that, that's the wealth of opportunity. Um, and I think, and if there's a mom and pop attached to each of these stores, that's like, you know, almost 100,000 people. I think right now we're still thinking about the first one. Sure. We need to make sure that this first one works. Um, I think a lot of it is a push and pull of what... Do people? What are people nostalgic for, and what do we need to keep? And we have to make sure that those you know, those memories are are hit right. When people say Chinese food hits a spot, they're saying that they have a specific memory of a certain type of way that this food behaves, and that's how it like arrives. And we have to make sure that that's preserved, despite whatever is happening behind the scenes. That's really important, right? Absolutely, and I believe you've used the term of re-educating America about Chinese American food. How how are we re-educated while paying respect to some of these dishes that we know, like uh, General Sao, like uh, Crab Rangoon, like Lo Mein, Egg Fu Young? What is the re-education process? I think the in conjunction with talking about what we do need to re-educate, we also need to talk about what we don't want to re-educate or uh, cool. force people to change, right? Yeah. So in terms of the actual re-education, I think it oftentimes comes down to a question of r- respect. Chinese food, especially Chinese takeout food, has this um, uh, reputation for being cheap and easy and not delicious and not great mm-hmm. um, and not uh, well-cooked and a little shady and that sort of thing, yeah. right? Um, those things aren't true um, because yeah. the more you study— 100% untrue. And, be, ex- and actually, it is so spectacularly untrue that I think Chinese-American food is so wonderful to think about and 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 learn from. And this is from yourself, just to be clear, you're, you, you grew up in Hong Kong. Right, So yes. this was new to you when you came to Yale. You're right. Yeah, right, I right, did right. grow up in Hong Kong, and I come, came here to the U.S., and the first time I had Chinese-American food, I had a pretty similar reaction to what I imagine many Americans think of as Chinese-American food, which is, why do all these chickens have different names, but they also mostly like taste the same, <laughs> you know? Um, but the more you look into it, you realize that the business model of these Chinese-American restaurants, the way they've scaled up is amazing. First of all, there's no headquarters in Illinois. There's no PDF for how to cook General Tso's <laughs> chicken, but somehow there's a mac- like ridiculous amount of standardization nationwide. Second of all, these people come into these restaurants and they don't have prep hours. So if they're open from 11 to 9, they come into work at 11 and they leave at 9. There's one position in this restaurant that is particularly exciting to me, which is the Xiao Mei, which is the little sister that stands in the front. Mm. This is the person who deals with all of the delivery drivers, all of the walk-in customers, but they also fry all the spring rolls, steam all the dumplings, and like package all the soup containers and scoop all the Turn ribs. the ribs. Right? This is turning the guard manger. Yeah, turning the, the ribs in the broiler. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the guard manger plus the, the, the front amazing. of house, right? It's, it's really incredible. And it's really, really efficient, right? And that's why um, Chinese restaurants have been able to be profitable despite having a 200-item menu. So there are things that we can learn about from, from a business perspective. There are things we can learn about Chinese takeout food. And that, that's a business side of things. Mm-hmm. 
culinary side of things, you can look at how cultural confluence has produced specific dishes. Ribs is a really, really great example. Um, in New York in particular, ribs sell really, really well um, in, uh, in particular in Puerto Rican neighborhoods because there, there seems to be some and uh, other like sort of South American, Latin American um, uh, communities within New York, specific boroughs, really, really like this sort of Chinese-style char siu, you know, barbecue takeout rib. There, and there is some confluence, there is an influence there, right? It's served with French fries sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some restaurants that serve it with like moho sauce on the side. Mm-hmm. And so you can take in those things and think to yourself that, you know what? Chinese-American chefs and Chinese-American restaurateurs have cooked for so many adjacent cultures that it would be, we would be remiss to build a new type of Chinese-American restaurant mm-hmm. and not absorb some of those influences as well, mm-hmm. because that is part of the conversation of Chinese-American food. Back to the initial question, once the first location, Huntington, Long Island, mm-hmm. is off and running and you've got this model and you feel comfortable with the way you've kind of segued from old to new, how many nice days will there be in America? How many, what is your <laughs> ambition? I, I just, I get so excited by the way you're so articulate about the, the important factors and all the bullets that each of these deals has to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call them deals. It's a little crass. These, yeah, yeah. These, these partnerships. Yeah, for sure. How many are we going to have? I want to hear this from you. I, I mean, I w- of course. Like, of course, I'd love to sit here and tell you that um, <laughs> if there are thousands, then, then we have done what we're supposed to do and right. you know really helped change the way Chinese American food is going. But um, I think it depends. I really can only think of this first one that we're about to open sure. in the month. Uh, I think one big move and one big... Uh, the thing that's really changed my mind is like the pandemic has reminded me of how difficult it is to open restaurants in New York City. And um, the fact that people used to tell you that if you can do it in New York, you can do it anywhere. I don't think that's totally true. In New York, it's a pretty specific market um, and you're cooking for a very specific type of people, right? So I am much more interested in seeing how um, our ideas would work and or not work in places like Long Island mm-hmm. in the suburbs right mm-hmm. um, I would love to um, I would love to open a restaurant in Michigan and then mm-hmm. we're going to talk about Michigan later we are and we can talk about that right now like <laughs> yeah. let's segue directly to Michigan thank you for doing that segue I was I had it lined up I was ready to do it and I was like okay let's talk about <laughs> Michigan you spend time in the great state of Michigan many of the podcast listeners know I'm from West Michigan so let's first talk about your time there what draws you to the food of Michigan um, my girlfriend and her parents um, do. Um, they are so. I'm a Hong. I'm a city boy from Hong Kong, yeah. and meeting this girl and meeting her parents is, has been such a you know whirlwind roller coaster. And I've fallen in love with Michigan. Um, we go back at least once a year for Thanksgiving. We try mm-hmm. to go back for the summer as well. And uh, they take me to places that are so so fascinating to me. I am in love with Americana. Um, it takes an immigrant to realize how wonderful these things are sometimes. Yeah. But when we drive back, you know, you stop in these places. I remember uh, chili dogs, delicious chili dogs on the way back from the Michigan-Ohio State game. Um, I remember uh, like fried gizzards at these fried chicken spots, right? Um, Obviously, Detroit-style pizza. Well and good, like local pizza joints that have turbo chefs um, in them that make delicious, like perfectly. Bellachinos, I don't know if you've been, no, Bellachinos. Bellachinos is like the perfect, like half microwave toasted, like Italian sandwich of all time. Yeah, Um, Ohio's got a number of chains as well. It's definitely classic. Speaking of Ohio, you know, Skyline Chili. I love Skyline Chili. Yeah. You know, I love Ohio style chili. But there's something so bizarre and uh, bizarre and, and you know different um, mm-hmm. about that type of, of uh, food and mm-hmm. flavor and texture. Um, not to mention, obviously, the Thanksgiving meal itself. Which um, is its own tradition and beautiful. Yeah. Uh, let's let's <laughs> drill down into a couple of these foods because I feel like you really have um, a, a complete respect for Michigan cuisine. Mm. 
we've we've Instagrammed a lot about it, and I I, I just love it, and I, I love it. It does take an, an immigrant potentially to uh, observe and acknowledge how wonderful the Frico crust is on a Detroit style pizza. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's just go here yeah. right now. Let's go Detroit style pizza. Why is it so good? I, I'm not a pizza guy. Uh, I, yeah. I, I don't make pizza, but it's cheddar on the outside, right? That, that's a huge amount of the crispy success of this pizza. I don't know if this is kosher. This is cool to say. I mean, it's way better than deep dish. Um, it's like it's the, totally okay to because say. you because you can pick it up, you know. And among other things, it's still got that fluffy bread texture. Like everybody likes at Domino's, right? Everybody likes garlic cheesy bread. That's the best thing on the menu. Everybody Easily. knows. Just imagine that, but like even crispier and actually made like a pizza. Um, and that's Jets, you know. So you're a Jets guy. I'm a huge Jets guy, mostly because yeah, the ranch. The Jets Ranch is the best ranch of all time. I 100% agree. I like Buddies as well. I think I get Jets in the mm-hmm. west side of the state where I grew up, yes. and Buddies is a local chain on the east side. But like Jets, so about that ranch, it it informed um, a, a fried rice that you did, right? Yeah. You did a ranch fried rice. We talked about it, and Anna and I have an episode talking about ranch uh, earlier in the podcast, mm-hmm. but also you created this dish that is like, I think probably a million dollar idea. (laughs) Maybe a billion dollar idea. I did it for a video. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, it's a... It starts um, with the video. Yeah, buffalo fried, you know, buffalo chicken fried rice with ranch over the top. Um, There is a science behind it because the ranch is so perfect for, uh, I mean, ranch and buffalo sauce are perfect because both of them are fat-based sauces. And so it helps cool down the the, the capsaicin in that that hot sauce, right? But um, there's also something wonderful about... um, uh, ranch in fried rice because it's so fatty um, and there's that dairy component. So when you add it in the fried rice at the right time, it helps um, uh, lubricate each and every grain. So it actually kind of preserves that texture. Unlike adding something wet, like other, like like, uh, soy sauce, for example. A lot of people like to add soy sauce to the fried rice. I personally don't because it messes with the texture of the fried rice. But ranch uh, preserves it because of how high the fat content is. We have, for Duki and I, for Koreatown, we do gojujang butter on the kimchi bokumbap Mm -hmm. and that is exactly Exactly. the point. You've got to have that fat on the fried rice. Yeah, when it's cooking. Otherwise, you know, yeah. otherwise um, it'll just ruin the texture. Oh my gosh! Yeah. I, and so, where has this uh, this dish been served? This, uh, this uh, I served it very briefly for late night <gasps> at Junza like years ago, and mostly now it's one of those. I'm not sure if it really is a good idea, and I'm not sure if everybody needs to see this part of me on a regular yeah. basis type of thing. So, um, it's very much uh, uh, for me and my girlfriend at home. I love that. You do keep a lot of your uh, recipes. It is very home style. It is like home cooking. So what about home style cooking? Like what do you like to cook at home? I mean, what really makes you excited right now? I know it's a rotating list of dishes. Obviously chefs don't really cook at home, but there's something very special about cooking for a very small number of people in your home. Um, A lot of it comes down to opening your fridge, seeing what's left over, what you have and trying to make something of it. Kind of like chopped. Mm -hmm. And... Recently, I've been really sort of excited about eating sort of different types of grains uh, that aren't traditionally um, like like rice substitutes mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been really excited about eating jobs tier on a regular basis, mm-hmm. barley, farro, and cooking it a little bit, starting it off maybe a little bit like a risotto, but also using it as a grain base for other types of braised vegetables and, and meats and sort of thing. I... I suppose it is October, so I'm obsessed with Oktoberfest. <laughs> <laughs> we did a big Oktoberfest feast this weekend. But at the end of the day, um, for me, cooking at home, a lot of it has to do with, w- one, feeding myself and using whatever's in the fridge, but also separately, oftentimes trying to think about these dishes and these techniques that my parents and my grandmother had spoken about mm-hmm. and cooked for me when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, every culture has this, you know, these grandmother principles that may or may not be true. 
And cooking at home is a really great opportunity to, for me to test those uh, theories. Uh, theories, yeah, right? Yeah. Some of them are myths, yeah. uh, and you myths. know, by and large, most of them are uh, some degree of myth. But they have good principles embedded within them. Like the reason why something works might not be exactly why Grandma said it does work, but the reason to do it does produce a sort of more consistent result one way or the other. So that's a really good way to think about sort of mm-hmm. these like home-style um, intergenerational uh, mm-hmm. Chinese sort of like cooking techniques and cooking ideas that I've been excited about. So, you know, a lot of like steaming, uh, mixing, marinating meats in different ways. Um, very, It's very different from uh, American home cooking. Uh, Which the, is like bake. Which is, yeah, really yeah roast. Mix and, 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 and set and forget, you know, like these exactly. like slow cooker type of a Instant lot of like, pot, all that stuff, right, yeah. and like big cuts of meat and things. Yeah, yeah. Whereas a lot of, I think for me, Chinese home cooking is blending small amounts of animal product or a little bit of meat into a lot of vegetables, a lot of steaming um, and, and making things that are delicious to eat with rice. Yeah. yeah. I want to know, Lucas, like, where are you going to be in five years? Because it's just, to me, there's a lot of directions you could go in. I feel like you've got a, your, your budding media star I don't and know about that <laughs> well I, I you're modest but i, I really just like sh- i'm shots called like you're gonna have a show at some point I, if you want to i don't know if you want mm-hmm. to but i feel like you've got enough uh just it, curiosity and you just you're great like you're just really good at it or you could just let's think about like the other way like like a nice day and then you've got like a, a few more of those mm-hmm. so yeah. let's do the prediction like five years from now where are you gonna be prediction I well, hopefully, Nice Day has its finds its legs. I would really like to see uh, Nice Day start a conversation about Chinese American food nationwide. You know, it's we're, yes, you know, yes. it would be really cool to see people in Michigan, in Ann Arbor, or you know, in in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. in, in in the on the east side of uh, Washington State. Like, think about you know uh, uh, Chinese American food in a renewed way. That would be really that's important to me. Um, I'm also, I don't know if I'm the perfect person to do it, but I'm very glad that we're starting this now. Like me and my team are really pushing hard for this. Um, I would also really like to think about specific types of uh, regional American Chinese food. Um, And yes, Chinese American food is a regional Chinese cuisine, but there is also hyper-regional American Chinese cooking. Go back to Michigan, right? Detroit-style corned beef egg rolls. That is an egg roll that was invented by a Vietnamese lady working at a Jewish deli mm. that is primarily now served to people in Detroit. And it is a yeah. freaking corned beef egg roll, and it's awesome, right? It's served with this like secret sauce and mustard and all these things. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it can only exist in Detroit because of that. Is it Chinese mustard or is it more Jewish-style mustard? Think, uh, I think they serve it with Jewish mustard because it yeah, was yeah, yeah. traditionally sort of like a, it was the ends of the corned beef in, in a Jewish deli. Yeah. And um, there are stories like this all over the place, right? There's Springfield-style cashew chicken in Western Massachusetts. There's a chow mein sandwich. Which is um, they're, they're all these like very specific things that have evolved that are food items that tell the story of how one or a couple specific Chinese-ish restaurants or Chinese-ish recipes affected a very local community. I would love to collect those stories. It's one of the greatest buried stories uh, hiding in plain sight. You said 46,000 mom and pops yeah. in America. And I've yet to even come across an article. I'm sure they're there, so yeah. please don't write. But Definitely not a book, definitely not a TV show about regional Chinese-American yeah. cuisine. Right. And and the history is so ex- – they're very easy base level stuff. Why in the world do West Coasters call chow mein what we call lo mein over here on the East Coast? Why do we eat beef fried rice over there but there's no beef fried rice in California? Like, these yep. little – like mm-hmm. um, th- 
mistranslations and happy mistranslations, plus the uh, it's just like this ingenuity and this tenacity of like Chinese restaurateurs yeah. all over the country. Like I would love to find some way to document that. You know, you say maybe maybe one day it'll be a show, maybe one day, and this very well could be a cookbook. That that is part of I think something that I would be excited to do because I have decided to be here in the United States for a little while. Speaking of cookbooks, we ask everyone on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook without time or budget constraints as a factor. Mm-hmm. What would that cookbook be? That's that's that book, right? Um, maybe you and me in a car driving around the U.S., right, and <laughs> going to visit these Chinese American restaurants that may may very well not be here in five years' time. My favorite. I really want to document the bourbon chicken recipe at this little place called um, Little Easy, which is the best restaurant name of all time. Uh, so good. in 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 Michigan, in Western Michigan, yeah. um, they're in a mall where the Sears is, and the Sears is closing or has closed, and so their business is bad. And every year I go for Thanksgiving, you know, the day after Black Friday, they're the only people open. We go and we're like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like the one person to speak Cantonese with them like all year. And they're like, you know, business is bad because Sears is closing. But here is two pounds of bourbon chicken in a styrofoam box for $7.99. I'm like, thank you so much. Love you to death, right? I would love to document those recipes and those stories in an interesting way. And I think the road trip is the most fun and the best way to do it. Right. Um, and of course, like may very well have to be Chinese American to start off with. But there is this like, you know, my be- or beautiful America sort of mm-hmm. um, like you can do this for you can look at how um, all of Asian cuisine interacts with different types of Americana and American cuisine in the South. You know, you're thinking about these Vietnamese communities. You're thinking about dishes like Yakamein that is a very mm-hmm. specific um, uh, um, intersection of uh, Chinese-ish noodles with some sort of like Vietnamese, like Bunbo Wei style, like mm-hmm. spicy, like uh, uh, influence, plus obviously mostly that it's cooked by, you know, amazing black chefs. Mm-hmm. So all like those intersectional histories, there must be a, like a smart, deliberate and structured way to, to collect I think, I mean, Road Food was uh, this this kind of aging franchise um, from the 90s. And mm-hmm. I think, Lucas, you could reboot Road Food. <laughs> Road Food. Road yeah. Food and be, and be the new, ro- the, the, do the ro- new Road Food. Right, right. As long as we don't do it like a cheap eats throughout the U.S. type of yeah. thing. You know, it's just like, this is, this is like immigrant cooking at its best, you know. It can only exist in the U.S. and only in a country like the U.S. It doesn't exist in Europe for a very good reason. I can't wait to see this book happen. Let's <laughs> hit the road, okay? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> Lucas Sin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. So Anna and I have been popping into the podcast here and there to talk about upcoming cookbooks, cookbook news, chit-chat, chit-chat. Um, but Anna, you're seeing a pattern in this current season that you wrote about on Taste. What is that? So, okay, when I sat down a few weeks back or a couple of months ago with just like this big pile of cookbooks that are coming out this fall, I noticed that almost every single cookbook contained a recipe for a fish cooked whole. The whole the whole ch- enchilada, but in fish form. Yeah, the whole enchilada. If an enchilada was a fish. It was a fish and in, in swimming in the ocean. Okay. Yeah. So like Cooking at Home by David Chang and Priya Krishna, um, that book has a cool steamed technique. Take One Fish by Josh Nyland um, has many techniques. Tasty Over the Top has a cool um, fish that's like covered in chili crisp. Cravings Altogether, the new Chrissy Teigen book. There's like a whole fish that you uh, rub with Tom Yum spices. Oh, Thai style? That makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. Yeah, and you cool. just roast it. Carla Lolly Music's 
new book, That Sounds So Good. Foodheim by Eric Wareheim and Emily Timberlake has a whole fish that's wrapped in fig leaves. There are just like so many recipes this season for whatever reason. Yeah, you know, with these whole fish, I I think oftentimes the home cook is going to think, okay, it's too challenging. This is such a chefy thing. And in fact, yes, many chefs do serve whole fish on their menus because they're so fun to eat. Remember Dookie and I, Dookie Hong, when we went on book tour uh, for Koreatown, we would always order the whole fish, no matter what. I, I learned that from him. And because it just can be difficult for home cooks to, to nail it. But, you know, channeling Carla Lolly Music's recipe entitled Not Scary Grilled Whole Fish, indeed, cooking a whole fish needn't be scary. Isn't that right? It really shouldn't be. And what I learned um, writing about the topic and talking to a whole bunch of chefs and cookbook authors, home cooks, is that it's a way not only to buy fish that's a little cheaper per pound, but you also get this really delicious end product with like lots of crispy skin, really moist meat. And also, it's just like a really cool presentation. Like if you're Cooking a dinner party, bringing out a platter with a whole fish on it is like really dramatic and fun. Absolutely. I mean, the presentation is everything for a dinner party. You know, that's what gets on the gram. But that's really what brings the guests back and ask for that invite, you know, six weeks later, six months (laughs) later. Right. And um, I just have to remind I'm reminded of, of a few times I saw these really, really beautiful fish in the wild. And, you know, I was lucky enough to go to Sydney, Australia, and I went to a restaurant called Golden Century which um, is a Chinese, I think it's a Cantonese restaurant, and they have tanks of fish, you know, in the front, and you point at the fish, and I, our group had pulled out this beautiful striped fish. It was certainly not a fish I'd ever eaten because Australia has all these crazy types of fish that you'll never eat. I loved that. It was with the just scallions and, and soy sauce. I also, Anna, recently had a grilled fish in New York, in Brooklyn, at Lilia. Have you been to Lilia? I have, yeah. I love Lilia. It's like legit, uh, you know, you read a bit about it, but it's Missy's a friend. Talia is a friend. They wrote a book called Pasta. We've covered it. But legit, like it's one of my favorite restaurants. And, you know, there's certainly pasta. The Agnolotti is is definitely like one of the top 10 dishes in New York. But I'll say this, the grilled fish that I had, the grilled sea bass with salsa verde, it made me think that, yes, grilling a whole fish can be really challenging to the home cook because to nail it, to get that char, to get that really abrasive, astringent flavor on the outside and that texture. And then you, when you dip into it with your fork and you get the just a beautifully cooked center, not too overdone, not too raw. I, I think about how difficult that is to do. Yeah. And just to avoid like the skin sticking to the grill and just like getting getting it all Ugh, caught in the grates. Nothing is worse than that. I, I feel like that to me... Um, when you have that stuck snapper on the grill grates, it just it, it it's a really sad thing. It's, it's a really really a bummer. Have you had any great whole fish? Now that we're just talking about like restaurants, we're basically going into our our Foursquare accounts. Remember Foursquare? You might not. <laughs> I use it still. I never had rest- a Foursquare account. Oh really? Well, for- <laughs> dude, really? Foursquare is how I like log all the restaurants I go to. Wow, still like it's still around. I think it is. I mean, I it still works for me. I just went to Sweet Green like. 15 minutes ago and logged in and put it there. But to me, honest, it's like how I remember restaurants. So we're basically going into our Foursquare account and we're saying, hey, these are all the places I've been. If there was a fish emoji functionality, I'd put a whole fish in front of it. So where would you put the fish emoji in front of which restaurants have had excellent whole fish for you in New York or otherwise? 
Well, along the lines of grilling being sort of hard to pull off at home, I really like getting a whole fried fish at a restaurant because Mm -hmm. that's also something that's like maybe I wouldn't do it at home. But I recently had dinner at Domica on the Lower East Side, and they have such a cool dish that's just a little tiny paplet uh, fish that's been fully fried and then just like encrusted and all of these beautiful spices, and they serve it with a green chutney. So it's whole so fish can good. be tiny, too, or smaller. Yeah, totally. Ah. Yeah, I think so. It reminds me in Korea, there's a lot of whole fish traditions. Oftentimes, you'll go to a restaurant, you point at the tank like I had in Australia, but it'll be served raw. It's called hue, and you point to it, they butcher it, and in 10 minutes, you've got a whole fish in front of you, but it's been sliced up into sashimi. It's a Japanese word, hue in Japan, in uh, Korea, and you serve it with chojang, which is like a really cool gojujang vinegar, s- some kind of sweetness in it, maybe agave nectar in the States, and I love it. It's like the best way to have whole fish is like raw. Wow, that sounds really cool. What about like when you're cooking whole fish at home? What are your go-to techniques for just like winging it or like, you know, doing it on the go? It's a good question because I think about that grill experience and I'm like kind of shook by the idea of like having that whole fish stick to the grate and like being like, ta-da, here's our fish. And it's like basically half the fish and the carcass is on the grill. So I think the solution and my buddy Daniel Holzman kind of hit me to this this technique and we write about a new book, Food IQ, plug alert. Sorry about that. Just had to do it coming out in February. Basically, he does it in paper or in in France, en papillote. I think that's how you call it, en papillote. Yeah, close enough. (laughs) You basically take parchment paper and you fold it and you make an envelope with it and you wrap your fish with this envelope and you can put all sorts of different flavors, profiles and, and combinations in there. You can have like sake, butter and soy sauce. You can do chipotle, tomatillo and lime. Um, and you just seal it together and then steam it for like 15, 20 minutes and then you're done. It's basically that. That's cool. And then like steaming kind of creates a gentle way of making it a little harder to overcook. Absolutely agree. It's the slow cooking. You can check it as well if you like, or you can just like wing it and do 15, 20 and see how it goes. You can always like reseal it and, and redo it. But I think what you don't want to do is have undercooked um, fish because like it's it's not just kind of unappetizing to have that that flesh that isn't totally cooked through, but it's really hard to take the bones out when it's undercooked. So you want to make sure it's properly cooked so you can debone it and then serve it on that platter. I really like that. One thing about cooking on papillot is that You want to make sure if you're adding like uh, vegetables in the paper, you want to like cut up those vegetables and make sure they're not whole because it's all cooking at the same time. So you want to basically time it so that your vegetables and your proteins cook together. It's like kind of a tip that I'd say kind it is a tip. I don't know why I'm not being forceful. It is a cooking tip. Yeah, that's important. Sort of on a similar note, foil yaki I love is a technique for fish. Love that. The concept, it's basically a, a Japanese cooking technique where you wrap a fish that can be rubbed in miso or other flavorings can be combined with like a few other like sm- small cut vegetables and you wrap it into a foil packet and bake it at like a sort of moderate temperature so it doesn't overcook and it just sort of gently steams in there. It's so great. It's like a, the foil version of um, papillot, but I think it's even more foolproof to put it in foil. I, I absolutely love that in your oven. Um, you can go to like Village Choco in, in New York does a vo- version of foil yaki. If you want to go to the restaurant side, but I love cooking at home though. Totally. Another foolproof way is the classic salt crust, which yes. is really fun to pull out at a dinner party. You basically just mix egg whites and like a ton of kosher salt until it mm. becomes this like 
gross paste <laughs> and then you just like cover coat a whole you know branzino for instance in that with like a few maybe a few lemon slices in the cavity a few herbs it's so good and it just like creates this awesome little like insulation for the fish so that it can't get overcooked by your do you oven. remember the the, the fake us uh, uh, kosher salt shortage of like 2018 do you remember that? Oh, yeah, briefly. Like, I think someone tweeted, um, Diamond Crystal is, uh, we can't find it anywhere. And then everyone panicked. Literally, um, I got, I, I, t- I retweeted it. And then someone called me, an editor called me and said, is this true? And he went out and bought like six boxes of it. And I actually am <laughs> Amazoned like my myself four boxes of Diamond Crystal. Because it was like hilarious that there was like this idea that like the earth would not have enough salt. Wow. <laughs> like there's a shortage of salt in the earth. Meanwhile, this probably just started as a rumor because someone at that grocery store made a salt crusted fish. They bought all the boxes of salt and then it freaked everyone out. <laughs> exactly. It was definitely because of the salt crusted fish. That is the reason. That was yeah, that was the the, the the patient zero of it all, right? Yeah. I also just like as another at home technique that you could do like easily on just a weeknight, just roasting the fish, yeah. like on a sheet pan. Love that. It's like so quick, really easy to pull off. Fully agree. Alison Roman had a video, I think maybe this early summer, where she basically takes um, capers, lemons, um, and a lot of herbs and does a sizzle in the pan uh, with olive oil and then kind of pours it atop a whole fish and then roasts it right there, like on the sheet pan. So you just like you're starting with this sauce or this mini pan sauce and putting it in there. Totally agree. Like it's not that difficult to just roast a whole fish. You you can t- you can check temperature often enough if you're doing slow roast that's not gonna you're not gonna totally um, overcook it. I feel. Yeah, I like that for a trout too, especially like just like a really like a smaller fish that maybe yeah. serves one or two people. It's just a nice way. to Great do point it. on the calling out trout. Trout is definitely underrepresented. We actually haven't really talked about the fish, right? Which fish are great, right? Yeah. So, I, do you have a strategy when it comes to actually? buying the whole fish absolutely so i feel like the fish that i'm i'm drawn towards i think the snapper is the granddaddy of them all the red snapper the whole red snapper you hear that all the time in your head but you also have branzino and striped bass and dorad those are also really good to find um, in the store pretty available and when you're buying whole fish there's a couple things that you want to keep in mind like Obviously, this is kind of it takes a little bit of like practice or just instinct. But really, if you if you use your senses, you're going to get a great whole fish. So the first to me is the eyes, right? The eyes need to be clear. Have you heard that one before? I have. Yeah. So, I mean, after a whole fish has been sitting on the ice or like sitting in the refrigerator case for a couple days, they get a little cloudy. They droop a little bit and you get a little bit. The pupils can get a little bit fuzzy as well. Um, But yeah, you want to have crystal clear eyes. The flesh should be perky, shiny and bright. I think that's really important that you look at the actual skin. And when you touch it with your finger and push it, it should bounce back. Right. It should bounce right back. It shouldn't like stick there. That means that the fish is a little bit old. So you want it to bounce back. That's key. Are there any other types of fish that really work well in some of these whole fish cooking techniques? To be honest, I feel like it's just for me, it's bass. And it's I think that's the one that I'm always drawn towards. I feel like you could take a chance with any fish. Right. I don't I don't feel like you have to like say this is the only fish you can do. But I feel like freshness is key. Right. Freshness. You want to make sure that. Uh, you're cooking with the best cr- product possible. 
Definitely. And yeah. you just need to sell it to your guests, right? Isn't that key? <laughs> yeah. Like, and I think also once, I mean, in my experience, once you've cooked a whole fish a couple times and you get a little less intimidated by it, you kind of get to a point where you don't need a recipe and it doesn't depend on finding that one specific type of fish that's like called out in the recipe. It's it's almost going to, you'd say it's almost as easy, easy as roasting a chicken, right? I hope that the whole fish becomes as popular as the roast chicken. Yeah, we're hoping. Thank you for listening. You can read more about whole fish on taste at tastecooking.com. Thank you, Anna. Thanks, Matt. I'll talk to you soon. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.